Everybody, everybody take out your hand. Put it on your chest like you can pledge allegiance. Just take a minute. Hopefully everybody can feel that beating in your chest. We don't have to do CPR with anybody here this morning. So we're going to talk about today the heart. So I want you to feel your heart. Because this is not what we're talking about. (laughs) We're not talking about this physical organ that keeps the blood pumping through. Even though we use the word, the same word for that, we're going to be talking about what the Bible, when the Bible talks about the heart, that place of our affection, that place of our allegiance, that place of, of what we long for, what we hope for, that thing that we dream of, that thing we want desperately for, the thing we say no to other things to make space for, that place, the heart, is what we're going to be talking about. So I want us to take a minute as we prepare for worship and just close our eyes and make space for that. To take a couple deep breaths and bring our awareness, bring our attention to our heart, not the physical heart, but to our heart. And God, the Holy Spirit, we ask right now that you would help us understand our heart. Where it is, what it is, and what you intend for it. We ask that in this space, this brief time we have this morning, that you would push aside everything that distracts, distorts, pulls us away, and allow us to sit in your presence, the presence of one another, and your word, your mighty living word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, everybody survived the season? Everybody survived Valentine's? Right? Parents, did you get all the 10,000 obligatory Valentine's to uh, every kid in the class, not leaving anybody out, right? Singles, did you survive the onslaught of marketing? And... uh all that was telling you what you need to do or should do or want to do or could do, right? And couples, did you resist the urge to uh, scroll Instagram to compare your own Valentine's experience uh, with others, right? We're a crazy society. We're we're really nuts when it comes to this. I, I... I got to tell you, I don't like it. I don't like it. I'm, I'm pretty crotchety about this. Um, yeah, we don't even have time to go into who St. Valentine's really was. But <laughs> underlying and surrounding all this chaos, all this talk of love, all this talk of affection, we come into our text this week. 
And that's why it's important for us to distinguish between kind of how the world sees love, affection, your heart, and what God sees and how that works. So we're looking at our text. We're picking up our text in Mark. We're, we're seeing where Jesus is walking through. And here's the good news about all this, is Jesus is going to help us today really decipher this. We are going to get to see with clarity where our hearts need to be. So read with me. We're, we're starting in Mark chapter 7, starting with verse 1. Now the Pharisees and some of the experts of the law who came from Jerusalem gathered around him, Jesus. And they saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate their bread with unclean hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they perform a ritual washing, holding fast to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. They hold fast to many other traditions, the washing of pots, cups, kettles, and dining couches. The Pharisees and the experts of the law ask him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with unwashed hands? Pretty innocent question, actually. This is not, oftentimes we see the Pharisees really trying to kind of sneak one in on Jesus, kind of come around and do, but this is a pretty straightforward deal. This is a, this is a cultural ritual, which everybody would have been expected to behave by. And here Jesus' disciples are, are not doing it, so it's, it's an honest question. But the response that Jesus gives is, is, I mean, like he scorches them. Like he comes back, right? He said to them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain. Having no regard for the command of God, you hold fast to human traditions. Like, whoa, back up, Jesus, hold on. I just wanted to make sure no one was passing a cold around. And, and all of a sudden, you unload Isaiah on me? Ah, that's pretty rough. But Jesus is not done. He also said to them, you neatly reject the command of God in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, honor your mother and father. And whoever insults his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever help you would have received from me is korban, that is, a gift of God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do, and you do many things like this. Wow, wow, wow. Hold on, Jesus, did you get up on the wrong side of the bed or what this morning? Like an innocent question about washing of hands and all of a sudden, Jesus just goes off. So is he overreacting? I mean, just given the context that we have, it seems a little extreme with this. But I do think that this is a breaking point. For Jesus. I think as he has watched, as he has walked, as he has pulled his disciples around him, as he is proclaiming this vision of the kingdom, and we've already seen in his giving of the, fair, of, of the parables how he's been frustrated with the people's inability to understand, even his own disciples' inability to understand 
This thing, because it's not just about washing hands, right? That, that's not the issue. The thing is not the thing. The thing is not about washing your hands or not washing your hands. The thing is about where is the focus of the people. And Jesus, if anything, is not overreacting. He may be underreacting. Because he's trying to get us to see where is our heart. He's trying to get the people to say, look, you have to understand. You ask this question, what does that say about your heart? Because it's not where it should be. He goes on, he says, Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that can defile him by going in. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles him. Now, when Jesus had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about the parable. And I don't even understand that as a parable, but we'll go on. And he said to them, Are you so foolish? Don't you understand that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? For it it does not enter his heart, but his stomach. And Jesus gets pretty, pretty bold here, right? Pretty earthy. He goes, it comes in the stomach, goes out in the sewer. Parenthetical, the author adds, this means all foods are clean. He said, what comes out of a person defiles him. For from within, out of the human heart, comes evil ideas, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil, deceit, debauchery, evil, slander, pride, folly, all of these evils come from within a person and defile a person. And so what is the problem here Jesus is trying to say? He's saying we so quickly default to this idea of making ourselves right, of just give me the formula, give me the way to to navigate, just let me know how to do this thing and then I'm okay. And we set our hearts on the performance, on the comfort, on the control, instead of on Jesus. And as a result, things spin out of control because you know what? That never works. That never works. There is one thing, just like Jeff said, to tune our hearts to. There is only one thing that we must tune our hearts to because everything else will ultimately sound discordant, will create chaos, will create this ugliness. The problem is that Jesus sees is that the Pharisees' hearts were far away, and not just the Pharisees, but his own disciples. It's easy to knock the Pharisees here, but Jesus is also calling out his own disciples, and this is where we have to really pay attention. We can't just say, oh, look, Pharisees are getting it again. Glad I'm not one of them. Yeah, no. This is for all of us. But let me be quick to say what is not the problem here. So if the problem is our hearts are far away, here's what's not the problem. The ritual itself. What is not the problem is washing your hands before you eat. Okay, let's all do that. It's a good thing. The problem was not going to temple. The problem was not praying. The problem was not doing acts of kindness. The problem was not all the things that were enshrined in the law. Those things were not the problem. It was why they were being done and what effect they were having. 
Because I got to tell you, I really struggle with this. As, as y'all know, most of you know, Jane and I have a whole organization that is dedicated to helping people understand and practice um, spiritual formation practices, retreats and prayer and, and serving others. Like we believe deeply in the necessity of establishing activities and habits that form our hearts. The things they're doing are not the problem. It's where their heart is and where they're coming from. We have to have those things that establish, that help. But as soon as we lose sight of the goal, we lose sight of everything with that. So let me tell you what's not the solution. The solution is just not more moralism. Just as quickly as I say, hey, we need these habits, we need these practices, we need to do these things. The answer is not just more moralism. The answer is not work harder. We've talked a lot about this, the try harder, give up cycle. The answer is not, okay, well, this time I'm just going to, I'm going to make it happen this time. More effort with that, more self-effort. Now, that's not the answer either. As a matter of fact, this moralism often leads to an engagement, something we talk here a lot at Grace about, about bibliodolatry, is that we look to the Bible for principles, we look for the Bible to kind of be this guidebook so that we can just live our lives, just get a little God principle over here and make our lives better. Uh, there's a, a writer out right now who's, who's really uh, an interesting guy, a guy named Sky Jathani, and he says this, this quote. He says, when the Bible is primarily seen as a depository of divining principles for life, it fundamentally, changes, it fundamentally changes the way we engage with God and God's Word. Rather than a vehicle for knowing God and fostering our communion with God, we search scriptures for applicable principles that we may employ to control our world and life. And I would add, to control God as well. This is not Christianity. It's a pretty bold statement. This is Christian deism. In other words, we actually replace a relationship with God for a relationship with the Bible. This is endemic in our society, in our Christian culture. If one has the repair manual, why bother with the expense of the mechanic? I don't know that I've seen it more succinctly put than this. Is that what, we, what is passed off as Christianity in our society is often just Christian deism. It is the practice of, hey, let's get a good set of moral principles to live by. Let's enforce a fence and us versus them. We've talked about it before, a closed set mentality. You're either in or out according to these principles and navigate our life that way. We, and what it does is it keeps us in control. It keeps our hearts focused on ourselves. And this is exactly what Jesus was calling out the Pharisees. The Pharisees searched the scripture and they looked for the principles. They looked for the things to follow, not as a way of drawing closer and loving God, but as a way of controlling life. And again, before we are too quick to judge the Pharisees, this is rampant in our own society and it has been rampant in my own life many, many times. 
But there's a danger when we reject all that, when we say it's not about religion, it's about relationship, and we can't be doing all this stuff, we just have to love God. The answer is also, if it's not more moralism, it's also not romanticism. It's not this idea that if, hey, just follow your heart. It's not all you need is love. It's not just this ooey-gooey emotional response that somehow insinuates that, hey, if it weren't for all the rules, everybody would love one another and get along. Nothing could be further from the truth. The chaos that ensues from a society or a group or a family or even an individual who tries to live without restraint, who tries to just say, I'll just follow my heart, It's the gospel of Disney, Walt Disney, right? Just follow your heart. I guarantee your heart will lead you to some of the most selfish and dark, deceived and depraved places left to itself. So the answer is not moralism, but it's also not this romanticism on the other side that says, hey, just just, just follow your heart with that. And it's also not, and this may be the biggest thing in our society, it's also not just inertia. This idea that, hey, well, I'll just kind of sit in this neutral place, pick and choose with that, because that's not true either. Listen, we're all being formed by something. We are all loving something. It is not a question of if you are going to love, but what are you loving now? Because you are loving something. You are making space for something. You are hoping something. You are dreaming something. You are attached to something. So the question is not if, the question is what. So inertia is not the answer either. So we reject moralism, we reject reject romanticism, we reject, reject this inertia. So what do we attach to? What do we do? While the answers to what it is not are easy, the answers to what it is are not so easy. There is no greeting card answer. In this season of Hallmark and Dayspring and Candy Hearts and talking about love that makes it sound so simple, so easy, buy this, give these roses, get this candy, go on this date, do whatever. When we talk about loving God, we are talking about something totally other than that. We are talking about a whole life orientation. We are talking about setting our affections on God as we understand God in the person of Jesus Christ, informed by the Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God that encompasses everything. It is a whole life orientation that demands all of our affection, all of our affiliation, all of our association. It is not something we can do on the cheap. It is not something we can do half-heartedly. But this whole centering of ourselves in God is not something also that we do once and then move on from. 
Because at the core of what was driving the Pharisees' unrighteousness was this idea, hey, give me a set of rules, give me a list of things to do so that I can do them, check them off, and then move on with my life. And the answer is to reject that holistically. The answer is to say, no, I will never move on from this. I will never get this nailed. I will never have it totally figured out. That this love process, this learning to love, this learning to tune my heart to Jesus will take forever. It's never going to be done. And so the answer lies not so much in a thing as it is in an epiphany an understanding of what this is truly calling us to do. To love wholeheartedly with all that we have and to do whatever is necessary to foster that love. To order our lives, our priorities, our geography, our associations, everything. To order that in such a way where we are constantly engaged with this God who has come for us. That, friends, is what we are to be all about. And there's no quick fix for that. There is no shortcut. There is no easy answer. And there is no greeting card that will do that for us.